Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So many creatures, so many things. Each wondrous object is beautiful and striking. And I see nothing that isn't to my liking Here in Eden There's plums and peaches And pears and grapes So ripe and juicy And utterly inviting I find the apples especially exciting Here in Eden Yes, well, we know who's singing there, obviously. Barbara Harris. No, obviously, that is who's singing, actually. Uh, It's uh, Eve, because, in fact, the whole story, at least from one perspective, in one tradition, The whole story starts with an apple, doesn't it? We're going to talk about apples today. We're going to talk about them every way we can think of. And at the end, because we are fearless, we are going to compare apples and oranges, which we are told constantly you cannot do, you should not do. Do not compare apples and oranges. We're going to do it anyway. Uh, But before we do that, we have much to do as well. And we're very excited to have back, I think it might be her third appearance on the show, Martha Bayless, uh, Director of Folklore and Public Culture, Professor of English and Folklore at the University of Oregon. She is also the founder of the Early English Bread Project, which has little to do with apples, except maybe it does, which studies the role of bread in in early medieval uh, English culture. So uh, Martha Bayless, first of all, welcome back. Lovely to have you again. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about sort of apples as the semiotics of apples, apples as they exist in our collective subconscious. Um, and it, I mean, in one way, depending on what latitude you live at, there's apples are sort of woven into tradition, right? There's Winslow Homer did not paint a painting called Orange Picking. Uh, and Robert Frost did not write a poem called after plum picking. Uh, There's something about the apple, right, that's kind of just woven into some of our behaviors? Absolutely. I think, you know, apples come first, even when you're a child. Um, Apparently, the legend is that the reason the Beatles named their company Apple is that Paul McCartney observed that the first thing a child learns is A is for apple. So it's really fundamental to our lifestyle that apples are there. Right. Like so many things that Paul McCartney says, it makes total sense, except it doesn't. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we have sort of stories here in America, Johnny Appleseed. There isn't a Johnny Pomegranate seed, right? There's We want to know where the apples came from. Exactly. And the song is, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me, not don't sit under the pomegranate bush or whatever they grow on. 
Well, and, and I think the reason for that also, that specific song, which we will be playing at some point on this show, uh, there's that leads us to uh, down another path. So it's, I think, don't sit under the apple tree because apples are forbidden uh, in, in the Garden of Eden. There's, they are connected, rightly or wrongly, with certain kinds of transgressions. So I'm assuming that one reason it isn't pomegranate tree, besides just the problem that pomegranate is a dactyl uh, and they needed two syllables, was is something about that, right? Uh, well, I was looking on on the song in a more wholesome way than I think you are, <laughs> but you you raise an interesting point. I didn't realize what they were doing under the apple tree. Right. No, I mean, yeah, actually. Now, to get a little specific about it, if you listen to the Andrews version, Andrews sister's version, you'll hear there's a little bit of an introduction. They sing an introductory verse where it's kind of clear that this is, you know, I think it's a wartime song. Uh, uh, people are separated. The whole idea is you don't, you know, you don't want your partner sitting under the apple tree. It kind of means something there. But let's just talk about the fact that apples, they're nourishing and they're wonderful and they're perfect. But they're also treacherous, whether your name is Eve or Snow White, right? There's a apples can get you in trouble. Yeah, I think since they're the fundamental fruit, they're fundamental in two separate ways. One is fundamental to our sort of idea of, you know, good things to eat and yummy things that you appreciate and that you make into pies and things like that. But also, since they're good, they can tempt people. And then sometimes they tempt people in the wrong direction. Right. And this is going to come up a couple of times on the show, but the the apple in the Garden of Eden, I think there's folklorists and people people who do things that the kind of thing that you do tend to think that apple is also it's kind of a default setting for fruit. Right. Palm in particular in French um, really started out meaning fruit and then came to mean apple. But it's the reason that potatoes are palm de terre uh, and the original word for orange was palm d'orange uh, because it's uh, it, it, so the. This is my very circuitous way of saying she probably didn't eat an apple. <laughs> Eve, I mean, she probably didn't eat an apple. She ate a fruit and then that became an apple. Right. I mean, in the Hebrew, it's peri, which just means fruit. But when St. Jerome translated it into Latin, he noticed that uh, the word for um, fruit, usually apple, but sort of apple-like fruit, um, is malum, which is also the word for evil. And so he thought that was not a coincidence. You know, he thought, well, obviously God meant us to understand that this was the first evil and the fruit was the first evil. And when people thought of fruit, they their first thought was usually apples. So fruit came to mean apple. You know, there's lots of other um, examples of that. You you raised two good ones, but also like in, uh, in Italian, um, pomodoro, the is a tomato, but it's actually the apple of gold. Yeah. And even in English, pineapple, you know, is not an apple, but it's like a fruit. And so when we want to name a fruit, we are the word we grasp for is apple. And so it it goes way, way back that a fruit starts with apples. And then when you're tempted by fruit, it's probably apples you've been tempted by. Right. And I, I think, yes, I, I think we could extend that to the Apple of Discord, uh, which uh, is in Greek mythology. I mean, they probably would have known about apples. The, the notion is that Alexander brought back apples from his travels, some kind of dwarf apple. But so the Apple of Discord, which is rolled among goddesses and kind of plays a role 
kind of a reality to television housewives of of Olympus role in getting the Trojan War going. But it, it, once again, it's apples are trouble in that in that story. Right. And everybody seems to be very tempted by them. I mean, in that story, the Apple of Discord says for the most beautiful, Mm -hmm. but like, why put that on an apple? You know, if you'd rolled some other kind of undesirable object, like a tennis ball in there, they probably wouldn't have noticed. But they're like, oh, an apple, let me grab it, you know, and then they start getting into trouble. So if you want to tempt somebody, you offer them an apple and then somehow you make the apple, you know, produce bad consequences. But that's how you get started is you offer an apple. And yeah, I think apples are kind of iconic. I mean, uh, William Tell did not shoot uh, a tennis ball uh, off of his son's head. There might have actually been tennis balls. The French were playing tennis pretty early. But uh, but the main reason he didn't do that is because like an apple is a very iconic thing. It's just the way that you just said it. It's It's an apple. People pay more attention to it somehow. Right. And I mean, I think there are enough of them so that you can always get one if you want to tempt somebody. You know, if you're the (laughs) evil evil stepmother and you want to tempt Snow White, you you know, you're thinking, what can I grab? You know, and an apple is there. So it's tempting enough, but it's also available enough. Right. Just, you know, all of these iconic people, Snow, I mean, the the evil queen uh, and William Tell, just having to go to various apothecaries and say, do you have any tennis balls? Um, it just it doesn't really work. It doesn't. It doesn't. But you can just or get like the, a strawberry. You know that the, putting a strawberry on your son's head just would never. You know it would be laughable. But an apple is so standard. You think, okay, what shall I make him shoot off? You know his son's head. An apple is the thing. It's it's the fundamental thing that you use in stories. Another big difference between apples and strawberries is that apples can fall. So um, apples do fall. Uh, as a matter of fact, as I walk around here in, in early, early, you know, in late summer, early fall, I hear thump, thump, thump uh, in one of the orchards I walk through. And, and that's why Newton isn't hit in the head with a strawberry, right? I mean, you know, it's an apple again. Right. I mean, I guess he was sitting under the apple tree for a different reason yes, than the Andrews sisters. <laughs> Maybe the, the Andrews sisters were very interested in physics, uh, and I may have completely misinterpreted that song. But um, but no, he's yeah, he's sitting under the apple tree. Thump. Uh, this is obviously a totally apocryphal story, as are most of the stories that we're we're telling right now. But there's also a way in which an apple is sort of a. So let me quick, quickly tell you an actual real story. I'll do it fast. So uh, in college, um, I was taking a constitutional law class from a very famous uh, legal scholar named Charles Plack, except that right at the beginning of the term, he fell ill and he had to be hospitalized for a while. Uh, And we were told that we could have substitute lecturers come in or he would uh, he would record his lectures on a reel-to-reel tape recorder, and they we would they would just be played for us in class, and we were allowed to vote. Everybody voted to keep Charles Black any way we could, and so every day we would every scheduled day we would come into this big lecture hall, and there would be this big reel-to-reel tape recorder uh, up at the uh, up at the, and they, somebody would turn it on, and there would be Charles Black's voice talking to us. And uh, one of my friends, Scott Sherman, uh, after a few days of this, brought an apple up and put it next to the uh, tape recorder because there's that other idea, right? There's this idea that apples are a thing that you bring to your teacher to do what? Curry favor, maybe? Yeah, I think there that that's another instance of the fact that they're easily available. Like students will own an apple, you know, unlike an orange, which I, I shouldn't get premature and start comparing them. but um, 
you know, when my father was growing up in rural Illinois, he said they got an orange once a year in their Christmas stocking. They just never saw them. They were too exotic. But they had apples and and apples also keep all year long, you know, so you can always have them. Like if you're going to bring a strawberry to your teacher and you forget the strawberry is <laughs> mushy by the next time you you want to go in, but the apple keeps, you know, so it's one of the few fruits that you can keep for a long time without a lot of trouble. So they would be accessible. And yet they're, you know, they're great to eat. And so the teacher would appreciate it. Yeah, I think there's there's some there's a lot there in that little ritual. Right. I think you're also there's this notion that an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So maybe you're giving an apple to your teacher. Maybe it's saying, I, I wish you good health, which is a little bit too late for Charles Black in that particular story. But I wish you good health. And yeah, there's there's something nice and friendly about an apple. I mean, there's I, I, yes, it's ubiquitous. There's enough of them so that you can waste one on an archery stunt. You can blow one off poisoning uh, your beauty rival. Uh, you're not going to run out of apples. But I think there's, you know, I'm going to say this in the next segment, but I'll say it now too. Apples are the dogs of the fruit world. Everybody likes dogs. Dogs are really friendly. You know, there's something really friendly about apples. And also, I mean, I think that going back to the story of Newton, um, I'm not so sure it's a um, apocryphal story because apple trees are so ubiquitous. You know, he did have one in his yard at home, and and one reason I know that is that they have a. Um, a descendant of that tree outside um, Trinity College, Cambridge, because um, he was a student at Trinity. And uh, and there it is bearing apples, you know, and, and tourists <laughs> watching it intently, like, when is it going to fall? And I mean, that's a good question. Like, why when the apples re- get released from the tree, why do they go down? I mean, mm. good question. You would wonder. But the thing is that apples come to you. You know, and some other fruits do that, too. They fall off of trees. But things like strawberries, you have to go get them. And blueberries and blackberries, you have to wade in among the thorns. But apples are friendly and they come to you, you know. And that's that's another dog-like thing about apples, I think. Absolutely. I I love the way we're going here. Um, And I I hope it is true about Newton. I don't think ultimately from our perspective it matters that much, but it would be nice if it it were true. Yeah, they're just everywhere. They're not only are the ubiquitous in our lives, but they're everywhere in stories. There is, for example, a notion that Alexander brought them back and that's how Aristotle gets them. And Aristotle's interested in apples. And there's this um, uh, it's sort of a, um, an anonymous text from the Middle Ages that supposedly Aristotle and he's talking and he's dying and he's every once in a while the scent of apples will kind of revive him. Uh, I think there is th- that idea too in, in a way that just no other fruit really has it that Apples revive us. Apples nourish us. Apples are good for us. You know, I mean, lots of fruit is good for us. I don't know. Apples are special somehow. Yeah. And I mean, the year roundness makes it um, makes them more accessible in that way. If if somebody said pomegranates are good for you, you'd say, but yeah, I, you know, I can get pomegranates once a year. So what, you know, but the fact that apples are good for you and you can go into your kitchen and get one at any moment, you know, um, that that's that's a friendly aspect of the apple. No, absolutely. So I guess when when the more that we talk, the more that it becomes clear that it shouldn't surprise us the way apples are just woven in to songs and poems and stories and folktales. I mean, what else would be? And And it is this odd dynamic tension between a sense of availability and preciousness 
there's something very available about an apple, but something also that makes it special enough so that it could set up off a fight among goddesses or be a wonderful, um, but a little bit of a suck up uh, uh, gesture towards your teacher. And apparently they come in a magic variety, you know, because the golden apples, the sort of legendary golden apples, um, well, I mean, they in, you know, in certain forms, they grant immortality, apparently. Um, so you don't even need one a day, I guess you just need one. Uh, but, you know, the golden apples are always the kind that goddesses are pursuing and stuff like that. So to have a fruit that has a magic variety gives a certain luster to the fruit that other fruits don't have. Absolutely. So um, no surprise that they're called Apple computers uh, and Macintoshes and stuff like that. Uh, it's probably the same reason that Paul McCartney had. But uh, Martha Bayless, it's so great to talk to you again. we got to do a show about bread at some point. I mean, we already have our superstar guest. Uh, you know, the rest would be just decoration. But Martha Bayless is director of folklore and public culture and a professor of English and folklore at the University of Oregon. She's also the founder of the Early English Bread Project, which studies the role of bread in early medieval English culture. I don't know why I keep chuckling when I read that, but I do. Martha, it's so great to talk to you again. Sure. And let us take a break. Uh, and when we come back, we will say more. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Apples, here's my theory, all right? Apples, they are the dog of the fruit world. And by that, I mean people like them. You know, I mean, dogs cheer people <laughs> okay. up and people like dogs. Uh, and people like apples. 
You know, and and the other way that they're like dogs is that you can't just get a dog anymore. You have to get a Bernadoodle. You know, there's just like all these unusual varieties of dogs and they keep changing. And here to explain all of that to us is David Bedford, senior research fellow at the Department of Horticultural Science at the University of Minnesota. His team is responsible for creating the Honeycrisp, the Sweetango, the Zestar and the Rave apple varieties, among others. Uh, just in that introduction, I've made it clear why apples are like dogs, because there's a lot of different kinds of apples now. So first of all, David, well, welcome to our conversation. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Happy to be here to talk about one of my favorite subjects in the world. Right. Another thing about apples are that they're sort of the default fruit, right? If you're, ta- if you, if you're going to just sort of talk about the idea of a fruit, I mean, the apple of my eye. Or, and there's even that sense, right, that the Garden of Eden was all about uh, Eve eating an apple, although... And of course, you're you know you're an apple file, so you may have reason to want to depart from this story. But there is some some basis for thinking that it's a fig or a pomegranate or something. Tell us about that. Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, if we you know look back uh, to where we think mankind developed and, and descended from, uh, regardless of of what your religious beliefs, but let's just say it, that mankind descended or evolved from East Africa. Uh, there's very little indication that apples would have ever been native and growing in that area. So, you know, we're making a lot of suppositions. Uh, but on the other hand, the Bible, and granted, I have not read the original text, but from what I understand, it says the uh, forbidden fruit. And uh, man has throughout the ages uh, interpreted that to be the apple. And uh, yes, we're thankful that we were thought so highly of, but not to the point of causing the downfall of mankind. Right. So we would take a little exception with that and probably point more to, as you've indicated, the fig or the pomegranate or something that would have uh, more likely have been native to that area. Now, we're willing to take credit for all the good press that they've gotten, but that one's a little touchy for us still. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, there's also a way in which it is sort of a compliment to the apple that it is a symbol of temptation. It's something that people, somebody might want, whether it's Eve or Snow White. If the evil queen had brought Snow White an apricot, it might have just sat there for months, right? I mean, like nobody really (laughs) wants an apricot. But you know what I'm saying? There's a way in which it has has to be an apple because you're going to eat an apple. Well, good point. Yeah. Okay. I, I think we can accept that at least on a partial basis. All right. So on the other hand, I grew up in the, I was born in the mid fifties. I grew up in a world where I'm lucky enough to live in Connecticut. So I, Mm. I would have been sort of familiar with say Macintosh and stuff like that. But there was a kind of time where the American apple was red delicious. Talk a little bit about that and, and what that means in, in your world. Oh, well, I, to me, that was the dark ages. Um, you know, I grew up in that era, too. I was grow, grow, born in the early 50s. And so when I grew up, uh, apples were basically red delicious. I, I was further south than you, so I didn't even have the comfort of Macintosh or some regional apples. It was really red delicious or golden delicious. And uh, I always take a little exception with the naming of that apple because I think uh, were there any truth in advertising laws or anything enforced there, it would have been in trouble. Now, granted, it is red. I'll give you that. But delicious, mm, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with that a little bit. I mean, to me, it's a bit like, uh, well, that skin is a little bit like Naga hide. Uh, you kind of chisel your teeth through it, and then you get into sort of a, a soft, pulpy interior. It is sweet, sweetish, uh, 
Uh, but anyway, I, I hope you, I, I haven't tipped my hand too much. Red Delicious is not my favorite. No, uh, I, no, actually, Red Delicious is an apple that kind of everybody poops on these days. And I'm also wondering, scientifically, horticulturally, is, was there a degradation of Red Delicious? Presumably, it was being bred more and more for certain characteristics. I'm guessing red would be one of those characteristics, except in the case of Golden Delicious. And we should say that an, an apple tree, even though it's the same kind of apple tree, it can change a little bit. There's a thing called a sport, right, in an apple tree that yeah. might give you – explain all that. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, the actual – the original Red Delicious, believe it or not, was found on a farm in Iowa. Not a big apple growing area. Uh, and in fact, the, the story goes that the farmer cut it down the first time he saw it because it was in a spot in the field or the edge of a field that he wanted to cultivate. So he cut it down. It re-sprouted again. And I, I think there was something about he cut it down a second time. And uh, the third time it sprouted, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, there was something to the effect, you know, I have I've cut thee down twice and still you regrow. So I will give you life or something to that effect. So anyway, he let the tree grow. It began to bear fruit some years later. He took the fruit to a county or state fair. I guess it was maybe the state fair at that point. Ex displayed the fruit. Uh, a nurseryman actually took interest in it and had very much interest in, in promoting it uh, only to lose this man's connection, contacts. And so it, it appeared that once again, Red Delicious was going to be lost to, to forever. Apparently, the following year, he did display the fruit again at the fair. The nurserymen made contact with him, and that was Stark. It was the Stark's nursery. And they're the ones that actually developed, I guess, the commercial aspects of Red Delicious. So that was the beginning. But since that time, and it's been over 100 years, you are correct. Um, the apple, like any other plant in nature, has spontaneous mutations that occur because as cells are dividing, sometimes the, uh, the, the process goes slightly awry and some changes occur. And most of those changes are invisible to us and, and nature, but one that does get noticed uh, is occasionally there'll be a mutation in the color of the skin of a fruit. And uh, sometimes that mutation is less red, those get ignored, uh, but in a small percentage of the times, uh, there is a redder skin that, that results. And so once that happens, nurserymen and, and orchardists get very excited, and that becomes the new version of that apple. So Red Delicious, and uh, by the way, it wasn't called Red Delicious in the beginning. It was just delicious. Uh, but Red Delicious over the years has had somewhere in the neighborhood of, well, I, I won't even try to quote a number, but let's say dozens of mutations that have changed it from the original. Now, many horticulturists would say that uh, it's only a mutation of the skin, so that shouldn't affect the flavor. But there's been enough evidence that other things change. And so, yes, you, you might well be right that we really are not eating the original. Well, we're certainly not eating the original Red Delicious. How different is the flavor? I'm not sure. I haven't had the original. The original strain is out there somewhere. It's so poorly colored that it would never be sold commercially. But the old strain is known as Hawkeye. So if you go to an old orchard and somebody will give you a Hawkeye Red Delicious, 
you'll be eating a piece of history. <laughs> well, there's, I mean, I go to a lot of farmer's markets, and it is interesting from time to time somebody will say, show you an heirloom apple and say, this is the kind that, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson planted these or something. You do feel mm. like maybe you're eating, eating some history. But we want to yep. talk to you about the future or the present and the future. So the first thing that kind of broke the chokehold of the red and golden delicious, in a big way anyway, I mean, there have always been lots of kinds of apples, but once <laughs> Granny Smith showed up in the supermarket, I feel like it was Katie bar the door that a lot of things were going to happen. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, as you said, Red Delicious and Golden Delicious were so dominant and and mostly Red Delicious. Uh, The grocers really was nice and simple for them. They only had to stock two apples. Maybe occasionally they'd throw in a Macintosh up in your neck of the woods, but really no need to go beyond that. And um, then Granny Smith showed up, and Granny Smith was originally found in Australia. It actually was found on a in a compost heap uh, <laughs> behind a, a sheep uh, ranch. And the woman that ran the kitchen uh, threw all her compost out into a pile, and at some point, some apple seeds went out there. That grew, one of those seeds grew into a tree. The woman's name was Smith. Somebody had called her Granny, apparently, and so the name stuck. That became Granny Smith. Then the apples that we would get in the early 80s, probably, of Granny Smith, mostly were coming from New Zealand. They started sending this green apple to the States, and it was different. You know, if you would send a a red apple to a grocer, he'd say, well, we've got a red apple. And, and look how red it is. And, and, and they would be right. Those, those red delicious were really red. They had an unusual shape. We won't get into the texture and flavor, but in their mind, we've got all the reds we need. But when a green showed up, uh, hmm, that was different. We don't have a green. What are we going to do with this? So it went onto the shelves and uh, people got interested in it. And they realized, wow, there's more to apples than red delicious. So even though I won't call Granny Smith the greatest apple in the world, it kind of played an important pivotal role at the right time. I want to talk a little bit about you. There's been a lot of stuff in a variety lately about the fact that now that Christopher Nolan had such a success with the movie Oppenheimer that he's working on Bedford. Uh, and Bedford will be uh, about another experimental team meeting in great secrecy, trying to, de- to develop the ultimate apple, the apple that can be used to solve all of humankind's problems that will eventually be the Honeycrisp. But uh, but what was that like? I mean, just give us kind of a sense of, you know, if, if Nolan's going to shoot that movie, what are we going to be seeing? How do you create a new apple? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it's much less complicated than the nuclear fission, I can assure you, but uh, equally enjoyable when, well, maybe enjoyable is not the right word, but at any rate, what we do basically is hybridizing, crossbreeding. And so we will take two different parents um, and cross them just as humans reproduce, just as animals, dogs, as you say. It's sexual propagation, basically. And the offspring receive half of their genes from one parent, half from the other parent. Just as with children, you can't control which genes you pass on. Uh, That happens randomly. And in the case of apples, we make a lot of those crosses because we can't control exactly which genes go through. We do control which genes are in the hopper, if you will, because we choose those parents and we choose them for their genes. 
But, uh, you know, a lot of those combinations, when they go together, are just, uh, well, some percentage of them are not very good apples. A large percentage of them are what you would call, if you were to walk the, our fields and eat them with me, not so bad. Yeah. You'd say, wow, not so bad. But for us, not so bad is the kiss of death. You know, if all you can say about an apple is, oh, that's not so bad, uh, we've got plenty of not so bad apples. So we're we're much stricter than that. Well, and- let me just jump in here and say, did you know what you wanted with Honeycrisp? In other words, do you, you, were you saying, I want to make this kind of apple? Or did, were you just making apples and apples and apples and suddenly you made Honeycrisp and it was like, oh, wow, this is what we wanted all along. We just didn't know it. Yeah, actually, a little more of the latter, uh, believe it or not, because, you know, you can't always envision what is possible. You you can only see what you know already. So, yes, we wanted a crisper apple, but we really didn't know that it could become as crisp as Honeycrisp. So it was a pleasant surprise. And with any breeding, you get sort of a bell-shaped curve of, of where the children will fall. And most of them will fall in the middle of a bell-shaped curve, which means that they're almost exactly between the traits of the two parents. But the interesting things are the things that are out on the edges of the curve, where there's hardly any population there. And that's where you find the exceptional stuff. And that's where Honeycrisp was. It, It was far crisper than either parent. It was crisper than anything I had eaten. Uh, so, yes, it, I guess you would say it was our hope, but we really didn't know that it could happen until it did. Right. So, and what what else was, nice. when you first started tasting Honeycrisp, we, we get the crisp part, it's right there in the name. What other yeah. things were you picking up? Were you and whatever co- colleagues and tasters you had working on this? What were you yeah. noticing? Well, well, I, I was very new in the in the business, um, you know, so I, I didn't know as much as I do now about taste and flavor and whatnot, but I knew enough to know that that texture was not like a normal apple. So, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind when you don't know the, the field very well and you know that something isn't normal, uh, you think, well, that's abnormal. Now, abnormal, you know, I guess normally is not good. Uh, And I didn't quite go there with my mind, but I thought, my gosh, I don't know what this is. I mean, texture wise. And and the thing that it reminded me the most of was an Asian pear. And I loved Asian pears. I love crisp, juicy texture. So I thought, well, if nothing else, the Asian pear people are going to love this. But it wasn't clear if the whole world would or not. And so it took me a little while to sort that out in my mind. Is this good? Is this bad? I have to say, it didn't take very long to figure out it was good. It took much longer to figure out if the rest of the world liked it or not. Uh, Fortunately, they did. Now, the future holds all kinds of exciting possibilities. The minute you're willing to kind of step away from this earlier platonic idea of what an apple is, you know, suddenly you can eat all kinds of things. There's a Kandil Sinap from the Black Sea region that's, I think, long, tall and narrow. There's something called a Black Oxford, which is an exotic dark purple apple that looks almost like a huge plum. But I guess I'm wondering for you, what's the apple de tutti apples? What's the greatest apple you've ever eaten? What's the apple that made you the happiest oh, the minute you bit into yeah. it? Yeah, well, I, I, mm, I think... Yeah, I mean, really, we get again back, at least in my mind, the two most important characteristics are texture and flavor. Now, that's out of about 20 different characteristics that we evaluate and and hope to influence. 
But when it comes right down to it, you know, the reason you eat an apple again, now the reason you eat an apple the first time might be different, but the reason you eat an apple again is the eating experience that you had the first time. And really, from our research, that goes back to texture and flavor. Now, appearance is important, especially in that first purchase. You know, sometimes it's hard to get a good apple past your eyes if it doesn't if it's not attractive but again texture and flavor so now we zero in on that texture okay honey crisp is the standard i mean in in our world of breeding if it doesn't have a honey crisp texture it gets thrown away end of discussion and we actually now have a few apples that we call ultra crisp which are the next level beyond honey crisp and texture so that's the first thing i would amp up is i'd go up to the ultra crisp category the second part is the flavor and generally apples are considered a balance of sugar and acid you know we we don't maybe get into all the nuances that the wine people do uh, we don't um, imagine that we taste um, a fruity, grassy, um, you know, finish with an oaky overtone. Maybe it's there. Maybe you get it in cider. But for apple eating, it's sugar and acid. And then we get some aromatics on top of that often. So if I was to look at the perfect apple, I would have an ultra crisp with an unusual flavor uh, and uh, some of the unusual flavors that we've come across. My favorite one probably, and it's it's kind of fleeting. We haven't been able to uh, capture this in a, in a good apple with texture and all that is a cherry lifesaver. You can imagine that <laughs> in a super crisp apple. Um, yeah, that, that would be my go. We've got others that taste like clove. We get a little bit of a clove flavor. The one that, that is not so much fun that we do get, and we'll get this with some little regularity, is mushroom. Now, I love a good mushroom <laughs> on pizza, but, you know, in an apple... No, no, we don't want that. We don't want not that. quite right. All so, right. anyway, that's the range we have. So, the, so ultimately, the greatest apple you've ever had is one you haven't had yet, right? It's the that's apple right. you're still yeah, dreaming it's about. It's in my mind. It's right. in my mind. And one day, maybe, but uh, that you're exactly right. I, I think that could be the tagline for the movie. Let's just try it here. Coming to movie theaters in the summer of 2024, he, the greatest apple he's ever had is one he hasn't had yet. Brad Pitt is... Bedford, and no, then we have like the big music. I like Don't you? I, yeah, I, I, I'm getting chills. I'm getting just yeah, incredible uh, chills here. Like where you're going. All right. So David Bedford, the Oppenheimer of apples, except he just made nice things that people could eat that didn't hurt anybody. Uh, <laughs> David Bedford is a senior research fellow at the Department of Horticultural Sciences at the University of Minnesota. His team is responsible for the Honeycrisp, the Sweetango, the Zestar, and Rave apple varieties, among others. Thank you so much for your time today, sir. Well, my pleasure. Always enjoy talking apples. <laughs> okay. I can tell that. That actually comes through a little bit. Uh, all right. We're going to take a break now. We're going to come back with something else after this. Don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. I know the apple tree is reserved for you and me. And I'll be true till you come And thanks to our technical producer, Kat Pastor, today. The senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show is Lily Tyson. She's also the producer of this particular episode. We are so excited here. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a Papulian through line here. We just talked to David Bedford, the Oppenheimer of apples, the guy who dreamed of a kind of apple that didn't exist and created the Honeycrisp and other kinds of apples. 
Now we're going to talk to a guy who dreamed of a kind of pasta that didn't exist and created the cascatelli. That's not what we're going to talk to him about. We're going to talk. I have, however, I have had a cascatelli in my mouth. I just want to say uh, several. Uh, Dan Pashman is the creator and host of the Sporkful podcast. And yes, he's the inventor of a new pasta shape. But here, Dan, because your middle name is Danger, uh, you decided (laughs) to do something that we are warned constantly not to do, which is compare apples and oranges. We are just told all the time. It's the default explanation of why yeah. you shouldn't compare unlike things. And so you had to go there, right? They told you to get get off the ice. You went further out on the ice. Look, it's really it's the third rail of food journalism. <laughs> I think we can all agree. <laughs> um, look, you know, I, I'm kind of allergic to doing what everybody else is doing and what everyone tells me to do. So uh, at times that's a weakness, but um, at times a strength. And so, yes, I, th- I think that it's OK to compare apples and oranges. I think you can compare really any food, but certainly any kind of fruit, I think, is fair game to compare. Right. Speaking of things you're allergic to, you were allergic to apples for a while, right? You went through a period of being allergic to apples. Do I have that correct? That's right. And I still do occasionally. It's it's very mild. It's not super serious. It's something called oral allergy syndrome. I have a lot of seasonal allergies. I'm allergic to pollen and grass and all that stuff. And it wasn't an issue growing up, but I hit a, a period kind of in my 20s where like if I were to bite into an apple or eat an apple, it was just I'd start sneezing a lot. My mouth would get itchy. It would be unpleasant for a half an hour, and it made me move away from apples. During that time, did, did, yeah, during that time, did you find as you walked down the streets, doctors just flocked around you? You had no, yeah. mean, you had no <laughs> means of keeping them away, right? So they would it, just come to you. Yeah, they were like, "Can we? St- will you donate your body to science, please?" <laughs> um, you know, so I just, I just kind of stopped eating apples as a result, and then I, I guess I sort of outgrew it. Mostly, it still happens. I would say with five percent of the times that I eat apples, I've not been able to figure out why some and not others. Yeah, um, well, I, I mean, you know, fugu can go wrong on us too. We still eat the blowfish. <laughs> we love it. So, yeah, uh, yeah. So let's let's do the job here. Let's do this incredibly dangerous job: apples, okay. oranges. I mean, I think if you're shopping, if you're doing some grocery shopping for a 17th century pirate, you got to buy him an orange because of the scurvy thing. But I don't sure. know. Is there is there any kind of argument to be made for the superior superiority of the orange to the apple? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, an orange, you know, if you're going to be traveling, going somewhere, you know, because of it, it has the thick peel, I think that an orange will hold up better. Yeah, sure, you can throw an apple in your bag, but if it sits in your backpack for a day it's going to start to turn mealy. An orange can sit in your backpack for a day and still be in good shape. Yeah, I um, think I think you know it's the honey crisp is so named because crispness is one of the things we really seek in an apple and it is an it is an elusive butterfly to a certain degree, right? I mean there isn't a thing that happens to oranges quite as uh, as capriciously as mealiness happens to apples. That's true. I mean, if you keep your apples in the fridge, they'll say crispy for quite a while. But but like I said, if you're on the go or if you leave them out, they will lose that precious texture pretty quickly. Um, the other thing is that I think that I've actually argued that time, T-I-M-E, uh, not the not the spice, um, not the herb, can be a an ingredient when paired with orange wedges. So, again, I think that orange wedges hold up better to time. If you mm. peel an orange and leave the wedges sitting out, the, they will form an exterior crust that, um, when not taken, when found in moderation, I find to be extremely pleasing because it's almost like a a harder, 
slightly crusty exterior that, that is a little bit drier, but then it gives way to the still incredibly juicy interior of that orange wedge. And when you get that piercing, it's almost similar to like biting through the natural casing on a hot dog. You get that, you get a snap <laughs> and that's a great bite. We definitely know that orange wedges will will endure at least through a children's soccer game because they're right, like, exactly you know, yeah. That's, so that's two hours right there, maybe. So now, on the other hand, one's feelings about oranges versus apples. If one hates to encounter an unplanned seed while eating, then you got to go with apples, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'll eat I'll eat all the seeds in either one of these two fruits. Frankly, you know, in, in a pinch, like I don't love it, but like when I'm on the go and I don't have anywhere to throw away my apple core, I'll just eat the whole thing. Um, and same thing with oranges. I think in both cases, I kind of, to me, I don't know. How do you feel, Colin? I feel like seeds are kind of a draw when comparing apples and oranges. They both have them. They're not great in either of them, but if you eat them in either case, it's not terrible. Yeah, no, I'm I'm okay with that. I'm not I'm not a fussy guy, uh, but there are fussy people, and we we have to think about them occasionally, or they'll right, get even more I, fussy. I say, when comparing the two on the seed front, I would call it a draw. All right, all right. I think you're being more than fair to oranges so far. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I don't know. There's also a way in which, and I think you guys really got at this on the Sporkful, that an orange is probably going to operate within a fairly narrow wavelength of good and bad, right? I mean, unless something drastic happens to it. Whereas, you know, apples can really suck. I mean, not just because of mealiness, but there's so many different kinds of apples and you have to get them right at the right moment. So it is, I think you guys compared it to love in a way that there's sort of, you could meet somebody who's just kind of okay, or you could seek somebody who is closer to perfection and possibly endure quite a few disappointments along the road. Yeah, I mean, look, I think this is a sort of a deep philosophical question for, and you have to, I think people have to look deep inside themselves and figure out, you know, how you're going to live your life. Because an orange is kind of the safe bet. There's less of, a, as you say, there's less of a range of possible outcomes. And so, um, you know, if you're the kind of person who likes to play it safe, then the orange is better for you. But with the apples, as you've been discussing throughout this hour, there's such a huge range. And yes, there are different varieties of oranges also, but they're not as readily accessible. Um, so with apples, there's such a wide variety of different types that are readily accessible. Um, and so there's different flavors, there's different sizes, there's different textures, and then there's going to be different levels of ripeness. And then there's going to be the temperature at which you're eating. And that you know, can go for either one. But so like, you know, it, it, if you're going to commit to eating an apple, you're, you're, there's a bit of a risk. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, do you want to go through life experiencing all of the, the highs and also the lows that it has to offer? Or are you looking for more of a, a flatter line? And to me, you know, I, there's research that shows that we tend to mostly only remember the highs and lows in our lives. You don't remember a day when nothing special happens. Yes, um, to extend so your I, yeah, to extend your original analogy, an orange, well, an apple is all the people that you meet on Tinder and an orange is somebody your parents introduced you to possibly even an arranged marriage. <laughs> right, but but if you spend enough time eating apples, you're going to find that I think that you'll find the one for you, you know. And and, and I I'm just the kind of person like I would rather chase life's highs mm -hmm. while also having to deal with some of its lows than to play it safe. And just have a medium level experience all the time. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you on that, and I think the the apples are worth it. Like the good apple is worth the bad apples you might hit along the way. Whereas the orange, can I just say one thing about oranges and their attitude? 
because I don't like their attitude, including like nothing rhymes with my me, nothing rhymes with my name. You know, <laughs> <laughs> suck it, oranges. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I no, I, I'm totally with you. We should just say also, uh, just in case people care about these things. Yes, if you're a pirate, you probably want to have an orange, 100 percent, more than 100 percent of your recommended daily amount of vitamin C. Calorie-wise, apples are a little bit higher. Um, but, you know, who's going to really think about that with fruit, right? Yeah. I mean, look, eat, eat fruit. It's fine. It's good for you. Right. And apples do have their share of vitamin C, I'll have you know. Um, you know, so you do get vitamin C with apples, too. And let's, I mean, I, first of all, I, I feel like it's not even a fair fight. I mean, I, I think, but let's, you know, even just, <laughs> let's take a baseball bat and just start clubbing oranges while they're on the ground. <laughs> um, are there orange fritters, Dan? No, but there could be. Well, they're, uh, they're, probably, they're probably, I mean, look, I, there oh, are, no, another yeah. Pashman product that, that I actually invented. <laughs> yeah, Pashman right. Look, I love apple fritters. They're one of my all-time favorite confections. Oranges don't have that, but there are great orange desserts. I love like an like an olive oil cake with orange zest. You know, orange zest, uh, citrus zest, Colin. You uh, don't get there's no apple zest. Yeah, you're okay? gonna break out the zest. So, All right, you know. Yeah, you know you, uh, uh, the many facets of of oranges. I love citrus zest in desserts. I think it's a great addition to like almost any kind of cookie or cake. Uh, it's the kind of subtle thing that is, a lot of people who eat it won't even quite place it, but they'll know that they love it. And so like, if we're going to compare which one works in desserts, <laughs> I, I think oranges hold their own against apples. I don't think so. It's not American as orange pie. <laughs> I mean, but like <laughs> apple you know, pie is kind of a big thing, Dan. It's iconic, but is it necessarily better? I mean, you know, a apples, a lot of Americana iconography because it, you know, because our country has its roots in the 13 colonies and British settlers, you know, uh, 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 skews to the northeast of the country where apples grow and where apples are popular. But, you know, in other parts of the country, oranges are predominant and you'll be much more likely to find orange based desserts than apple pies. No, you, you, you know, you, once again, you are a, a very compelling orator on behalf of oranges, uh, and and I and I recognize that we we're kind of running out of time. We we need another twenty minutes to go orange juice versus apple cider. I think that's like a really long conversation. Oh, I, that's I a tough one. I don't think yeah, we should even yeah. try to do that. But I do want to say that first of all, it's a thrill to have you here. Uh, Dan Pashman is the creator and host of the Sporkful Podcast, the inventor of the pasta-shaped cascatelli, and Pashman's orange fritters are expecting to be in your <laughs> in your grocer's freezer by spring of 2025. Uh, it takes a little bit of time to scale up there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dan, thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Colin. All right, we're done. We're done. So much fun. Thanks to Lily. Thanks to Kat. Thanks to you, too. Someone's phone is ringing, but I don't think it's ours. Dogs are sleeping in the shade. Yes, we really got it made. Mama, lie and me down underneath the apple. Mama,